while your day is winding down. They're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Barrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day. From local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard. To listen. And where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. Welcome to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow. 508-996-0500 is how you can join me this evening. We'll also take your messages on the WBSM app chat. We've got a really good show ahead for you tonight. We've got a, we've got a fire safety segment with Anthony Puente at, uh, at um, 8 o'clock. I know a lot of people love that segment. Some really helpful tips on fire safety, especially uh, with the warmer days just around the corner. And we have a candidate for New Bedford City Council uh, making their formal announcement at nine o'clock. You know, this is the venue. Uh, this is a uh, has been a great forum for for candidates to uh, announce their candidacy uh, locally here at W uh, at WBSM. So, but before that, we are actually joined by Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro. Hey, Sheriff, how are you? How you doing, Mark? It's good to talk to you again. Absolutely. So, um, you uh, recently uh, announced uh, earlier today some changes in some some of the uh, requirements, training requirements um, that you're going to expect from your correctional officers. Can you tell us more about mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So during the campaign um, last year, I was told that um, there wasn't much uh, training or not enough training in things like uh, duty to intervene and de-escalation techniques and um, dealing with mental illness. You know, the the training academy was doing some of that. And so I put that in the back of my mind. Um, I I told people I was going to look into it and increase the training. And uh, But it was in the back of my mind. And so uh, when I started in January, I sat down with the training academy director, Bobby Matos, and uh, we went over the curriculum. And I said, well, where is you know, uh, de-escalation techniques taught. And it was in a segment on communication. And I, I thought to myself, that's not enough. You know, and so um, it was something that I wanted to make sure correctional officers, you know, had uh, really advanced training in, you know, and, you know, just going through the academy wasn't enough. And so basically we have uh, increased the number of hours with the uh, duty, to, I'm sorry, the de-escalation as well as duties intervene and you know dealing with mental illness and, and implicit bias. You know these are four different topics. So uh, yeah, that's where we're at right now. You know it's, it's the training academy is going to have a lot more hours in this, um, and the in-service training that correctional officers go through every year. They're going to get advanced training in um, you know a lot of these all of these different topics. But it, it's important though. I mean we 
uh, you know, we have to make sure that correctional officers are properly trained and, you know, get advanced training, not just go through the bare minimum. So I think we're fairly familiar with um, what de-escalation training uh, is, but just for people who may not know, what is de-escalation training? So there are things that you have to uh, be prepared to deal with when you are a correctional officer or a police officer. And these things, you know, like these, uh, you know, like people pushing your buttons, people getting up in your face, making empty threats, um, stuff that they were, they're doing to try to get a reaction out of you. So those are the types of things we need to make sure that we are better, like, you know, our correctional officers are, are like, they've gone through role playing. They've uh, been presented with scenarios before. And then they practice those scenarios in a controlled setting, and they are given sort of the techniques you needed to help keep a situation from going sideways, from escalating into into a use of force, which sometimes then will escalate into excessive force. So we want to avoid using force altogether. Um, but what we have to do is frame correctional officers in a way that they are prepared. We can't just say you know, give them a kind of crash course and say something like, you know, you have a duty to uh, de-escalate a situation. You know, you have to, you know, keep your calm and, you know, talk about that and then talk about some of the laws around it. That's, that's not enough. You know, you, have, you really need advanced training, at, you know, from somebody who specializes in this type of training. And there's different companies out there that do this. Um, but, you know, this is something that I think will make for better correctional officers it should we should see a reduction in the um, number of incidents of um, you know putting people in administrative segregation, which you know some people call the whole. You know, it's, it's actually just a cell by yourself, uh, kind of a cooling off period. But that's um, you know th- th- this is something that we want people trained in, whether they're police or they're correctional officers. You you want people to get this type of training. We're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harreau uh, about some new training requirements that he um, has announced earlier today for correctional officers. So um, implicit bias training, um, can you explain a, a little bit to the audience what that is? Uh. Yeah, implicit bias. We all have our prejudices and biases that we bring to everything we do. And it's based on uh, past life, you know, experiences, your life experiences, just, you know, things that you, you're not even always um, conscious of, you know, you not even have a, like awareness of. Sometimes these things are uh, subconscious, you know, they're lurking there. So when somebody approaches the situation, the impl- implicit bias training will help identify what biases you have against somebody. It could be a person of color. It could be male, female. It could be somebody of a particular um uh, you know, like like a socioeconomic status. It could just be the way somebody, their hair, the way they do their hair, or they have tattoos. It could be any number of things. And we're supposed to treat everybody the same. And the implicit bias is the idea is to try to make sure that correctional officers or police officers are aware of their own biases that they bring to something. And by training them, uh, in this, you know, having this like advanced training in this awareness. Also, it, it's more than just bringing to light their own biases. It, it's, it spends time talking about why this is important, why we ha- we can't bring our biases to work, or we have to leave them aside when we're doing the job. 
Um, that's important for a lot of reasons, but it, it's, you know, it's consistent with what we were seeing go sideways, you know, with a handful of high profile uh, police abuse cases throughout the country. And, you know, I don't want, I mean, people don't often hear about what goes on inside a correctional facility, a jail or a prison, but you're dealing with the same people. Um, mm. And, you know, because the people on the street end up in the, end up in jail or prison and you're actually dealing with a greater concentration of people who are, you know, have, you know, broken the law. So it's important to have address these things and to make sure that correctional officers are trained to the best possible level. We're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff uh, Paul Haro. Um, so uh, you might have said this, but um, uh, but uh, you know, in your announcement, you said that you've expanded the um, the academy from uh, eight weeks to nine weeks. Uh, is eight weeks sort of the, is that is that now going to be longer than most academies? Is it still shorter than most academies? Where, where does it? How does it compare? It's kind of in the middle. You know, it's we have um, a regular monthly meeting with the Massachusetts Sheriffs Association, and all of the sheriffs are in agreement that we're going to have a uniform minimum standard. That way, the correctional officers um, can move around from one to the next. We are then also able to say, hey, you know, our COs meet the minimum standard across the state, but then it will be incumbent upon each of the sheriffs to go above and beyond that to the degree they necessary. So these, these are some of the things that I'm prioritizing. Um, de-escalation, especially implicit bias, duty to intervene, dealing with mental illness. But there's more to it that we also are, as we noted in the press release, we are also going to be doing more defensive tactics. We're going to be doing some, um, you know, like report writing. Uh, believe it or not, some people don't have adequate report writing skills. You know, there's a lot of folks who, um, you know, basically they just come from a high school background and they don't have a professional background. Sure. So when they start the job, you know, they just they just don't either have that education or experience. And so we want to get them up because sometimes these reports, they have to go to court. And yeah. other times it's just, you know, in, internally trying to decipher what somebody means. And, um, you know, th- those things are important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so we're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff, uh, Paul Haro. So, um, you know, every, it's my understanding, it was just from talking to, um, your public information officer, it's my understanding that there is a required, um, 40 hours of, of in-service training. Now, is that, is it going to remain 40 hours? Uh, is it going to be expanded or are you just including, or just modifying it, uh, within those 40 hours, within the 40 hour par- uh, parameters? No, this the, we're going to be particularly with the do, um, de-escalation. That is going to be expanded in the forty hours of training. So there are other things that we were, you know that aren't as much of a priority, um, and I've left that to the training director to figure out how he's going to schedule that, and you know, he'll come back. And if we need to do more than forty hours, maybe we'll do more than forty hours. But yeah. right now, I think there's things that. The training, the in-service training, which is kind of like, for people who don't know the term in-service, it's sort of like continuing education that a correctional officer or other staff goes through every year. Um, but yeah, that, that's, it's, that's also going to be prioritized at refreshers every year because, I, like I said, I want everybody to stay up to date and have the best training available. And, um, yeah, it should make for better correctional officers and, you know, more 
humane and uh, like lawful experience while somebody's incarcerated. So I see duty to intervene four hours. Now, is it duty? Is is it a duty to intervene? Uh, my understanding of that always is if you see another officer committing some sort of wrongdoing or suspect them of committing some sort of wrongdoing, is that more or less what you mean? By, uh, what that means? Exactly. Think, think George Floyd. Just think about George Floyd, sure. and there's, that's probably the most high-profile example of that. And you know, the uh, that, that's exactly what that training is is designed to do. Um, it, it's when when some some police officers call it a tap out. You know, they. Uh, like uh, when things are going sideways with, you know, with a like either an inmate or a, a civilian citizen, and you know the things are escalating. Um, because police officers and correctional officers, they're humans. You know, they, they they make mistakes, and sometimes their emotions get the better of them. It happens to all of us. You know, it can happen to any of us. Um, that's why we need to make sure that we have training, training, training. We just drill these things down. That way, they fall back on their training and, and their. They're prepared, you know. They've mentally prepared. Go through these types of situations. Um, that, that's the whole idea. But you know, the the duty. I'm sorry, the uh, duty intervene. Just like you identified. Just think about George Floyd, and then you know how that could have and should have uh, been done. So we're speaking with uh, Bristol County Sheriff uh, uh, Paul Haro. Um, speaking of that, you, you'd mentioned it um, uh, actually in your in your statement today. Uh, during uh, 2020, um, you know, you there were calls for defunding the police and in some cases even abolishing police departments and in some, I think, more extreme examples. But uh, you made it clear that you're continuing. This is a continuation of a philosophy that you've had when you were Attleboro mayor. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. First of all, anybody who's calling for defunding the police, um, they really don't know what they're talking about. And anybody who's calling for the abolition of correctional facilities and, you know, like incarceration, they also don't know what they're talking about. They, they just, it's, it's easy to throw bombs like that from the outside, but those folks are irresponsible and uh, they're actually dangerous. You know, people that advocate for those things in there, they, they just don't know what they're talking about. So when I was uh, mayor in Attleboro, I worked very well and very closely with Kyle Hagney, the police chief. And one of the things that I we, we talked about early on was training, you know, and he and I were on the same page about this. And when he took over mayor, I'm sorry, when he took over as chief, the training budget was $15,000, like $15,000 a year. And then during his time as um, chief under Mayor Dumas, he got it up to $50,000. Um, I tripled that from 50000 to 150000 So, uh, the you know, police chief in Audible, Kyle, he can claim that the police training budget increased by a factor of 10 under him, whereas I increased it by a factor of three, you know. But it was, we were on the same page and we wanted to increase training because when all this was going down, when people were talking, oh, defund the police, you know, Kyle and I looked at each other, you know, chief of police, we looked at it, that's so stupid. I mean, if you get rid of training, that's like, I'm sorry, if you, if you cut the police budget, the first thing that's going to get cut is training and training is the very thing that keeps us out of the newspaper in the first place because then you're preparing police officers or in our case now correctional officers with the the techniques and the tools they need to navigate a difficult situation so you can't cut the number of police officers because you have if you cover certain area you know you have to have adequate coverage throughout the city you certainly can't cut the ammunition because then if the police officers don't have 
the required lawfully, you know, the legal requirements for how many hours of time on the range, then that, you know, you, you can't get licensed, I'm not licensed, can't get insured. It's you just the first thing to go, the easiest thing to cut is training. Yeah. But that's the very thing that keeps us out of tra- trouble in the first place. So, um, again, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry, you can't expect, I mean, it's just like you send. I mean, it's like any other training. You know, we, we we train our soldiers to go into a difficult situation in combat. How to keep your cool. How to navigate your way through. You know, things they they train, they train, they train. In that way, when they are faced with a situation, they know what to do. Yeah, it's like that with you know, if you went through law school, if you go to that medical school, you you, you got to just if you're a, like a boxer, you're you know, martial artist or something, you, you drill, you drill, you train, you train, you train. And that way, it's not, you don't do it to the point where you get it right. You do it to the point where you can't get it wrong. You know, that's how good training goes. And so, you know, Kyle and I recognize that, you know, and, and uh, you know, Police Chief and Adderbro, we recognize that. And, I, and when the 2020 riots were going on, we said, no, no, we're going to, we knew this was a pendulum swinging, and we knew it was going to go in the opposite direction at some point, and yeah. we wanted to be ahead of it. That's why we really heavily invested in uh, training. So um, we're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff Paul Hero uh, about some uh, training initiative, uh, these new training requirements that he's um, uh, put forward today for uh, new, both uh, new and existing um, correctional officers. So, uh, there's a couple more things I want to ask you about, but before we move on from this topic, is there anything that we forgot to cover? Uh, on this topic, no, not particularly, but, you know, I do have some news about the suicide report. Um, so if you want to. That's fantastic. That's, Great. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So the, uh, Lindsay Hayes, the consultant that we hired, and he came to, um, the jail back in early March. Yeah. Uh, he was there for three days. I think it was three days. And he submitted his report uh, just under a month later. It's about 65 pages. Uh, I have a copy and the general counsel have a copy and we're both going through it right now. There are a lot of things that we need to do differently. There's a wow. lot. It, you know, there was, um, I was pretty frustrated every time I heard somebody, even during my time at the jail, uh, Sheriff, I was very frustrated every time I heard somebody say, well, you know, the, the rate of suicide is higher outside um, in Bristol County than it is um, the rest of the state. You know, we're just higher naturally. It's just That was just, you know, that was passing the bucket. It was very frustrating to hear that, and I was not happy with that. Um, but there are a lot of things that we could have and should have been doing differently. Um, I would go so far as to say some of these suicides were absolutely preventable. I, I Based on what I've read so far and what I know about some of the suicides, that have happened, some of these suicides were preventable and they weren't uh, prevented. So that's a problem. Um, but there are there's so many things. I'm only 23 pages into this report, but there are so many things that we have to do differently. And, the, you know, we're going to do these things differently. I'm reading the report first, and Gretchen Bennett, the general counsel, is also reading, reading it. We want to make sure that um, there's nothing in it we need to redact before mm-hmm. we release it. I don't want to redact anything. I I want to release it as it is, but we ha- I, I need to know what's in it before I release it to reporters like yourself because you're going to start asking me questions, and I need to say, yes, I've read the report, and let me talk about that point. So um, uh, it's but it's very it's pretty dense reading. One of the things that jumped out at me early on in the report was the um, rate of suicide. I had in the past said numerous times that our 
rate of suicide was two and a half times what it should be. And I based that on a couple of, you know, quick calculations here in Massachusetts. But our rate of suicide is actually three times the national average. And so, yeah, that's pretty bad. Um, And there are very specific things we can and should be doing different to decrease the risk. Um, We're already doing some of these things, and I'll give you an example. Our bunk beds are seven. I've told you before on the radio, I said seven out of seven of our suicides, last seven out of seven suicides at at Dartmouth facility, all used a bunk bed. And there were so many ways to hang yourself using these bunk beds that they were being done different ways. But seven out of seven times, I mean, that's just downright negligent to not have addressed that in the past. And so working with the maintenance director, we are uh, modifying all of the bunk beds. It's gonna, we have seven, over 700 beds. So it's going to take a long time. We have to first create a prototype of what they want to look like. Um, I've actually been hands-on with this project, and, and I came up with a, uh, a design that I want the ladders to look like to get to the top bunk that doesn't have any choke points on it. And I actually, you know, it, it there was a prototype we saw on the internet, like a, a design where there was a plastic mold and there was no way to hang using that, but we didn't have a 3D printer or a plastic mold to make this. So we were using probably, I think it's, uh, it amounts to four pieces of metal, you know, four steel plates of different sizes. And it's a sort of a, uh, like a, uh, like a design that doesn't allow or anything to be tied on it in a way that would make it so that somebody could hang themselves. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking for, so we're going to do one of those, test it out. There's a couple of things we have to do. You know, we're going to try and find ways to hang on the beds. And when we find a new way, we're going to, you know, modif- further modify the bed. And once we come up with a design, that's what we're going to roll with. And it was, it was kind of disappointing though, because when I did a Google image search of, suicide-resistant jail or prison beds, the stuff I got was just terrible. I mean, there was only one design that was a plastic design, and it was blue, and it was uh, we couldn't use that particular design. But we, I took an idea from that, though, and then modified it. Um, but they're, they're really, it, it's not something that is really given much attention. Um, but we're, we're, we're taking that on. There was these posts that stood up, you know, kind of like these, I don't know, Imagine the four corners of a, a mattress. Now imagine taking a broomstick and vertically sticking it on each corner of the mattress. And so that makes it so that's something you can lasso a rope around or some type of way to hang yourself. Right. What was the point of those? There was no point. Why weren't those cut off a long time ago? You know, yeah. And then we have these little holes within the metal frame that somebody can and did hang themselves through, they stuff something through it, and then they hung themselves. Why weren't those covered up before? You know, it's just, it's just common sense. It's, 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 un, it's unconscionable that these things were not addressed previously. So, um, well, yeah, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff with that. So, yeah, so 65 pages, I guess, would... Uh, does, that like, is that like in, does that, like, indicate that, that, like, the amount of things that you have to do is, like, voluminous? Oh, it's huge. It's just, I mean, I've, there's, there's a lot of different things. I've only gone through a couple of, the, like, the the entrance procedure, like, an intake procedure um, and the screening, the way we screen, that needs to, there's a lot that needs to be done differently with that. Um, it's just, there's just so much in this report. It's almost like I could assign one person to work on this full time for the next year, and they probably, 
and I'm only 23 pages in, but, you know, to, to have to set up the meetings and to keep nudging things along and to, you know, redraft some of our forms and to add questions to forms that weren't previously asked, you know, to clean up the, the surveys and the questions at intake. It's, it's incredible how, um, how much needs to be done, you know, so anybody who said, oh, we're doing everything we, we you know, we're supposed to do, it's just like, no, no. I mean, there's just, there are literally dozens upon dozens of things that we can and should do. Some of these things that if had they had been done in the past, we wouldn't have had some of these suicides. You know, that's just, that's just a fact. So uh, we're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harrell. Um, so my understanding is that you're going to have uh, next week a, uh, a first hundred days uh, um, uh, press conference. Um, sort of highlighting some of the work that's been done uh, er, early in your tenure as sheriff, and and uh, and, you, and you plan on releasing the po- report hopefully by then. Yeah, I'll repeat. I'll repeat, release the report by then because by then I'll have a chance to have read the entire thing, mm-hmm. so I'll be prepared to answer questions about it. Um, so that that's that's one thing I'll be talking about the hundred days. Actually, a lot of this stuff we'll I'll be talking about is stuff that you and I have talked about over the last three months. Sure. But the but also, we kind of wanted to bring it all together and just say, hey, look, we've had a busy 100 days. Um, but there's also, I'll show for the first time publicly, the restructuring of the org chart and how that concerns inmate services. And I'm going to go through that in pretty close detail about how we are going to address reentry programming, um, inmate you know needs, caseworkers, classes. I made a... I basically threw out the old model. The old model was just, it was people were, like employees were um, stretched thin. They weren't getting the resources they need. There was a lot of duplication of efforts, but there wasn't cross-training and there wasn't succession. It was just, there was just so many problems with, um, you know, the way programming was being addressed. And, it, you know, we have good people there, but they weren't given the resources that were needed um, you know, to do their jobs. They're just, you know, they're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the CDL program is probably the best example. The CDL program. So a CDL is a commercial driver's license. And that's a really good, um, a really good uh, qualification to have to get a job. It's a really good one. As mayor, I had a hard time recruiting people with a CDL to work for our DPW. Yeah. As mayor, I had to work with waste management, our trash vendor, and they had a hard time hiring people with CDL. Um, so, that, you know, and then trash was always late. So CDL is a really marketable skill. And Sheriff Hodgson rightly was proud to have a CDL simulator, you know, that I think he got through a grant somehow. He was rightly proud to have that. Here's the problem, though. We have 700 inmates, and there's only six people participating in it. Last time I checked, it was six people, three men and three women. Right. And so, okay, so not enough participation. That's number one. And all they're doing is participating in a, in a simulator, which is just a big video game that you could, you know, it, it's not too different. If you saw this thing, it looks like, you know, one of those sit-in video games at Chuck E. Cheese. or sure. you, know, or, you know, it's kind of like that. So you are, you know, just the six people participating in that. None of these six people get any actual training on the road. So if they're not getting any training on the road, they're certainly not going to the registry of motor vehicles to get a CDL, and therefore they're certainly not getting a job doing this. 
And anybody who thinks that, oh, you participated in a simulator while you're locked up, and then you're going to go back out into the world, and you're going to continue on your training, your training, anybody who thinks that's what's happened is dreaming. Okay, that's just not happening. You know, so the CDL simulator is nothing more than a big video game. So what we need to do is get uh, restructure how this is being done, so that way we have more people participating, and then we also get the uh, inmates out in a truck. Uh, when, you know, with, with they have like a, a instructor in a passenger seat and security staff in the back seat, and they do their hours on the road and they get proficient to the point where they can actually get the go while they're still an inmate, go to the registry with security staff, of course, and, you know, they get their CDL. And then once they have that, then we put them in with one of our um, employment counselors. That's going to be another thing that I'm creating. Um, you know, and so these, you know, then they will try and get them a job before they're released from right. jail. That way, when they go back into society, they have a job lined up. They they had this line. They don't have to go and hunt hunt around for it. We, we, we're going to take care of that. That's what I want to do. So I want to make sure that that is lined up before they leave. Um, and, you know, make sure the housing is also all sorted, medical care. Make sure they have a, an identification. If you have a CDL, you'll have your ID. Um, but we need to make sure they have these things when they're before they're released, that way when they are out there, they can just hit the ground running. Because like I said, anybody who thinks that, oh, yeah, I got this program, I did the hours on a simulator, now I'm going to continue on with my train. No. When somebody gets out, they are just happy to be out. You know, right. they're not going to – it's just – we're going to do that. While we have them as a captive audience, we're going to, you know, usher them through the process to get back on their feet in a really meaningful way, not just say, hey, look, we got a program. And it's like, yeah, but to what end? So we're, we're going to do it right. So, Sheriff, um, I gotta I gotta hit this commercial break. I, I appreciate you joining us, uh, and I look forward to uh, attending the uh, the hundred days conference next week. Cool. Look forward to seeing you, Marcus. See ya. That was Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro, um announcing some uh, some new changes uh, for training requirements for correctional officers at the at the Bristol County Sheriff's Office. Um, and I think uh, saying some pretty striking things about the current state of suicide prevention at, at, at the. Uh, Bristol County Sheriff's Office. So um, I actually got an article on that. You can check out on WBSM.com on the new training. Uh, go take a look um, and are on the app. And uh, we're going to take this break. We'll be right back. This is South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus. Hey, welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow. And um, you can give me a call at 508 you can also shoot me a message on the WBSM app chat. That was Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro. Um, actually, Anthony Puente, I see him outside. He's going to be joining me soon. I'm actually going to take a quick commercial break and, and let him in, and uh, we'll be we'll we'll be back. Download the WBSM app and listen to us everywhere. HIV is not a crime, or it shouldn't be. People living with HIV can do and live fully healthy lives without risk of transmitting the virus to others. But a different fear remains. In 30 states, Americans are being imprisoned due to their HIV status. It's time for the laws to catch up to science. Join the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation to modernize outdated HIV criminalization laws. Go to ETAF.org. HIV is not a crime. Campaign funded through the support of Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Real-time reaction to everything that happens after the sun goes down. South Coast Tonight with Marcus and Chris is on WBSM. Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I'm Marcus Farrow. Um, by the way, no show tomorrow. I'm not going to be here. Chris won't be here. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, 
that's it. We won't be here. So, um, but uh, 508-996-0500 is how you can uh, join me this evening. We have Anthony Puente, the New Bedford Fire Department, coming up uh, soon. He's going to do his uh, fire safety um, segment um, that everybody really enjoys here. I think it's it's a nice it's a nice seasonal segment, and we'll we'll have him on again too to just sort of remind people of, of what to do now that the warmer weather's uh, just around the corner. So. Um, and with warmer weather comes um, a series of new fire hazards that you have to be mindful of uh, in order to have a safe and fun summer. So uh, 508-996-0500 is how you can join me this evening. We'll also take your messages on the WBSM app chat. That was Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro who joined us earlier. Seems to be, um, you know, a lot of changes. He's been a regular part of this uh, program since he's been inaugurated and i think that's in large part due to the fact that you know it's a new it's new leadership after 25 years uh at uh, after 25 years um you know there's a uh the 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 sheriff's office is you know going in a different direction because there's a different person that's in charge we did have uh former bristol county sheriff tom Hodgson on on tuesday and i thought it was important to have um uh the former sheriff on um, as a, a notable Republican uh, voice, and that was because, you know, with the with the former president uh, Donald Trump being uh, indicted formally and arrested, and uh, former Sheriff Hodgson having a actual working relationship with the former president, I thought his perspective was really valuable, and it seemed as though um, uh, there was a lot of good reception to the conversation that. Uh, the former sheriff and I were able to have. So we're we'll looking forward to talking with both the current and former sheriff uh, going forward. We're an equal opportunity uh, program for, for sheriffs. Uh, sheriffs of all political ideologies are, are welcome on this program. In fact, maybe we'll follow up with some of the sheriffs that we've talked to from other counties, uh, like Donna Buckley, uh, who I'd spoken with uh, sometime after her election, uh, just to see how things are going uh, over there as well. But until then, I'll be joined by you tonight at 508-996-0500. That's, that's how you can join us uh, this evening. We'll also take your messages on the WBSM app. Again, we've got a candidate for city council announcing their candidacy at 9 o'clock tonight. So you're going to want to tune in for that. This has become a good forum for candidates to sort of, uh, you know, launch their campaigns. We've invited all candidates, you know, both incumbents and challengers to uh, this is an open invitation now for all incumbents and challengers to to uh, announce their their uh, electoral intentions, um, you know, as Scott Lima did when he announced he wasn't seeking another term as the Ward 5 city councilor. He did pull papers for at large, which. Uh, should be interesting uh, if he follows through with that. Uh, where Hugh Dunn, uh, this is where Hugh Dunn announced that he was not seeking. Uh, uh, he was he was stepping down to pursue his uh, legal career in Boston. Uh, this is where Joe Lopes la- uh, just last week, or is it Monday? It all blends together. I think it was Monday. Yeah, it was Monday because then we got this, uh, you know, this new, this brand new old thirty-year-old phone. Uh, <laughs> the the very next day. Um, yeah, uh, Joe Lopes announced that he was running for the Ward 5 city council seat. So we're going to have a new candidate um, that's going to announce their candidacy here. And again, anybody that wants to come on, both incumbent city councilors and uh, challengers, people vying for an open seat, uh, where people may be running for mayor. Um, 
you can uh, you can feel free to call into this program and, and make your electoral intentions known. I think it's a I think it's a good forum for it. I think uh, Chris and I have um, I think the, you know done uh, a decent job um, making that uh, making this the, the the forum for that. So five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred is how you can join us this evening. I'm going to take your messages on the WBSM app, but I think what we'll do now is we'll we'll take a break um, and then uh, we'll finish out the hour strong. The first hour, I'm here till ten uh, of uh, of South Coast tonight. So thank you so much uh, for joining me this evening. Hey, welcome back. Just finishing out the eight o'clock or the seven o'clock hour. In the 8 o'clock hour, Anthony Puente from the Bedford Fire Department is going to be joining us to give us uh, some fire safety tips. If you got any questions for Anthony, you can give him a call at 508-996-0500 or you can message us on the WBSM app chat. We did get an app chat message from Wailing City residents saying, hey, sounded like Hero went at Hodgson pretty hard. Um, yeah, it does. It did feel that way, to be honest with you. Um, it, uh, talking about some things that, you know, they need to change and all of that stuff. Uh, it, did, it did feel that way, but um, he didn't mention him by name. You know, I think he was good to. I think he was good not to do that. You know, not you know, look forward, look ahead, and uh, and try to do the work. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it definitely did feel that way. I, I agree with you. Um, five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. We're actually finishing up the seven o'clock hour. And uh, we'll take your calls on the other end if you want to call in and ask uh, Anthony a question uh, about fire safety. I know there's a, there's some people that did uh, last time that had some that had some good questions um, for uh, for Anthony, both on the app chat and um, on the phone. So he's here with me, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll talk then. And then at nine o'clock again, there's going to be a candidate that's going to announce their candidacy uh, for um, for a local elected uh, office. So it's not Mayor Mitchell. <laughs> it's it's not Mayor Mitchell, but uh, I'm still working on getting that exclusive. Uh, hopefully, we can get that for you. But. Um, that's it. Uh, 508-996-0500 is how you can join. And we'll take your messages on the WBSM app. Uh, but we'll see you on the other side with 